few minutes ago, I finished one of the most irksome and exhausting tasks of my life. I chopped 27,688 words from my Bo Jackson book manuscript, Due Tomorrow. Chopping words is never fun. Never, ever. But one thing I've learned midway through book number 10 is there's always stuff to shed. Dangling words and repeated thoughts and quotes that go a beat or two too long. We all think, at least to some degree, that our work is flawless and perfect and can't be touched. But what can surprise a writer is a liberating feeling of attacking your brilliance with a drill and seeing that you're not so brilliant after all. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Chuck Culpepper, the fabulous Washington Post college football and basketball writer and truly one of the best journalists in the business. This is episode number 234. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you're smelling vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Chuck, I'm not trying to kiss up to you here. I was thinking about this when I was walking my dog this morning. You remind me of when I was covering Tony Gwynn when I was a baseball writer at SI, and nobody could get Gwynn out. Like every week these days, I read your stuff in the Washington Post about some college football game I don't care about, even remotely, because I don't care about college football. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, that's freaking good. Like, really freaking good. I just want to say, this is random. This is a random story. Chuck Culpepper at the intersection of Boo and Who is a Wake Forest loss that even has puppies weeping. This is not a team I care about. I've never thought about Wake Forest football. Your lead from Chapel Hill is Wake Forest lost here Saturday, and it felt just a little like rainbows blurred, sunflowers sagged, and puppies wept. The dreamy team with the dreamy name, the we enrollment, and the hell of a coach couldn't keep leads of 18 and 14 and saw a hiccup to its status as the charming undercurrent of the national college football season. The first 8-0 record in its 123 years playing football got blemished to 8-1. Its ranking on the college football playoff list will fall from number nine and probably to the traffic jam of double digits. It felt like the intersection of boo and who. What the hell? How does that even enter your head? I'm actually being serious. You're at this Wake Forest game. They lose to North Carolina 58-55. You're writing about this game. How does that even enter your head to write it as such? A, that's very kind of you. And B, I've already, hearing that thing was excruciating. I've already picked at it a few times. So, no, I don't know. I don't know. I just, uh, I went there knowing that. It's, it's so funny because people in North Carolina ask you, oh, are you here for the start of the Tar Heel basketball season with the new, Hubert Davis, the new coach, you know? And, oh, you're here for to see Hubert Davis. I'm like, no, here for Wake Forest football. So I already went into it with, you know, with a, what's going to happen to Wake Forest here kind of mentality. Cause they're so they're the smallest school in the power five and nobody knows quite where they are. If, unless you grew up around there, which I kind of, I grew up in Virginia, so I know, but, and but I don't really, it used to be somewhere else and then it moved to where it is now. So nobody hates wake, you know, Duke hates Carolina, Carolina hates Duke. So all that was playing into it. You know, this, this team that we're following and we want them to keep, um, to keep unbeaten because then we get to think about them and talk about them for further weeks through the, through November, you know, and they had a backloaded schedule. So you knew it was going to end sometime, but yeah, just, I just went there kind of with more of a Wake Forest, uh, more of a bias than you would have for any, you would never have a bias. Who, who cares if it's say Ohio state, Alabama, I don't care who wins that game. Uh, it's a story no matter who wins, but you don't care who wins. 
you're at the game, you're sitting in the press box, you're watching the game unfold. The lead you ended up with, did you write that before the game ended or right after the game ended? Right after the game. I knew it would be a Wake Forest bent, but I didn't know that puppies and rainbows and sunflowers, which are three of my favorite things, would turn up in there till just at the moment. The game ends. Do you go down or whatever? I guess they do it over Zoom now. I have no idea. Like the press conference with the coaches and stuff. Do you go to that and then write? Like, how does this work for you? Yes, go to that and then write. Now, the previous week I was Michigan, Michigan State, and that was a big profile game. So in that case, what you do is you finish the story as fast as you can at the wire, like within five minutes. Then you go down for the interviews in that case, because they're having them in person now with masks. And then you go back up and rewrite it in a, an hour and a half later. I'm really being serious about this. Mm-hmm. You're sitting at your laptop and it's Wake Forest lost here Saturday. And it felt just a little like rainbows blurred, sunflower sagged and puppies wept. I could sit in front of a laptop and those words would never occur to me to put in a lead about Wake Forest. Just wouldn't, you know, because our brains are wired differently. Are you looking for something or is it just kind of arrive? I think sports writing should be about life. You know, I don't know that it's thought about that way much anymore. It's much more covered like the stock market now or whatever, you know, who's up, who's down kind of deal. But um, I think I was looking for something that might. So the, the person I'm thinking of in that case doesn't really know about Wake Forest or what it is and hasn't followed the college football playoff rankings and, you know, wants to might want to know why this is uh, feels the way that it does. Do you feel like that's an outdated model? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I wonder, but I'm not sure. We definitely live in an age of give me the results. Give me the highlights. Just give me the, the raw, the rawness of the story. Are you battling that a little bit? Yes. So when Frank DeFord left Sports Illustrated in 1989 and after 27 years, he wrote this parting column that stays in my head all the time. Not all the time, but much of the time. And one sentence in it was sports were never meant to be covered like NATO or the bond market. So when I said earlier that thing about stock market, I'm actually thinking about that column. It was called Let the Words Wobble. That was the headline. And he just talked about looking for stories in all the wrong places, as he put it. Uh, He led with this thing about how Winnie the Pooh couldn't spell and said it's good spelling, but the letters just get rearranged sometimes. Some old story like that about Winnie the Pooh. And so, um, yeah, I keep that in mind because I really love that whole sentiment and especially when sports journalism got you know so um much more like journalism which it should properly you know it it should try to root out corruption it should operate in those veins but in in but i still think a lot of it is about wonder and happiness and and joy and it should it should be uh that as well i feel that's and so that's what that's the part of it where i feel that I don't know if if we're supposed to be doing that anymore to some degree, because there's a lot in it that's, you know, you look at the celebrations in towns when these teams win and you look at the field stormings, as I saw on Saturday, and you look at uh, what it means to people. And I, 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 I like I think that element is really important also in a healthy society. Do you ever do that at, right that way at the expense of information? Like, do you ever. Are people are there going to be people who read your stories and think, yeah, but you left out the Michigan State's third touchdown to make it twenty-one to seven? What the? Yeah, they might. Yeah, they 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 might. And but but I would leave out the third touchdown now for a, for a whole different reason, which is that we really do operate now on the 
the idea that most people who are reading it saw it with a game that big, Michigan, Michigan State. Maybe not so with Wake Forest. You know, you can't see. I, you, I don't know what the TV ratings were on the two, but it was large on the Michigan, Michigan State game. So, yeah, you kind of operate now with when you're when you're at a game with more of an idea of people do know what happened, and to some degree, they I think they like reliving it through a story, and I think that's important, but. At the same time, um, you don't have in your head that I have to explain the nuts and bolts of what happened so intricately as I used to. You mentioned you covered, you were in East Lansing and you covered Michigan, Michigan State, obviously a huge game, number six team, number eight team. Your lead was with mutual contempt in the air and the national rankings in the clouds. Number six, Michigan and number eight, Michigan State actually spent Saturday collaborating on a, a near sacrilege. They up and played a lot of pretty football in their annual detestathon under the perfectly brooding sky. Stuff happened. Michigan State's whiplash 37-33 win, wrung from a 30-14 third quarter deficit, proved more riveting than bruising. It dazzled. It had a Michigan State star running back who got starrier. It had a Michigan secret receiver who butted to star. It had a crowd of 76,549 that set the place to tremble. It even had a Michigan kicker who had to make four field goals in a row because trolling timeouts nixed the first three. It wound up crammed with too many things to ponder in one sitting all the way until 60 seconds remained and the second of two last Michigan gas gasped dead when Charles Brantley plucked a Cade McNamara hopeful pass toward an open tight end for a clinching interception. All right, first of all, the lead's great, but here's my question. Then you have a quote. Ah, oh, it was electric in the postgame locker room, man. Michigan State wide receiver Jaden Reed said, I had to sit down. Like, I remember at some point in my career, I had a moment where some editor said to me, you're going to be able to say it better than the athletes will, or the participants in general, the coaches, the athletes, whoever. Like, and my reliance on quoting was way too hard, you know, like you're going to be able to say it better than them. So don't, don't, don't feel like you have to quote ever or even, you know, blah, blah, blah. Do you feel at all like I need to quote some people in these stories? I have to have their voice in there. Do you feel at all burdened by that? I don't feel burdened by it, but I, I do have that thought go through my head every time. After I've been done my part, I, you know, whatever that is, I always feel like I have to uh, yeah, it's time to get to at some point to the other to the to the voices and as many as possible. And often with a game, you can have you can quote them more briefly, as in that case, because you don't need them to explain what a game it was because people know and they saw and you know that that game had a I, th I believe it's Mel Tucker, the Michigan State coach, who starts off by apologizing for his voice, and that's a quote that I think. A long time ago, I would have just left out. But to me, I used it at the expense of all the other things he said in the beginning, because that tells us that it was quite some some fracas out there. Actually, yeah, you wrote you have a quote from him. The game kind of speaks for itself. Michigan State coach Mel Tucker said, and you wrote, excuse my voice. And then excuse you wrote my voice. That's right. It did sound raspy. And then someone said, could you repeat that question one more time? Reed finally said to a reporter at one point, my head's everywhere right now. So you're saying like Chuck Culpepper 30 years ago, not using that. Not using that, no. What changed in your career or in your approach that made you realize, wait, these little things, these little, little, little moments yeah. actually tell stuff that I'm, I've been leaving out for far too long. Well, and these little things that say you were producing a transcript, say you worked for the university and producing a transcript, you might just leave that part out. And that would be rational, you know, but sometimes those little parts, those little, I think it's because of so many years of listening to, you know, what it's like listening to the, the what would we call it? The dialect of sports talking and you, and you really grow weary of 
hearing the same old things decade after decade that are the same, you know, in the same descriptions. And those things, such as my, excuse my voice, turn out to be the more human. Those are the more human parts, you know, that that sort of humanize the person speaking and tell us that it, it was a human being out there in the middle of that crazy, you know, beautiful game. So, yeah, I think, I think it became more like that, more of a saying, what's going to make this guy sound more authentic and not more like he's just reading from the script that, you know, a lot of college football players are taught by the PR staffs how to answer questions and, and you, you can sort of tell while they're answering them that they're, they're just using what they taught rather than who they are. So, yeah, I, I just find those, I just, the more and more I listened to it, the more I got more compelled by the little asides that aren't really asides, but that kind of make humanize the, the people. You easily, easily, easily could have had a career where you like, yeah, I'm just going to write books. I'm, I'm going to just write books and I'm going to do this. And, and I feel like I would not want your job because I just don't care about college sports and I don't really care about sports anymore. Not the day to day. And I think I got kind of jaded and I did get jaded. You know, I got jaded. I was standing in locker rooms, made me jaded and listening to coaches made me jaded and dealing with PR people got me jaded and saying, yeah, we can give you five minutes with this guy, all that stuff. Like just beat the shit out of me after a while. And you seem as freaking fresh as fresh and enthusiastic as a person could be covering also athletes who are in some cases, I don't know, 35 years younger than you. How do you maintain that? Well, I feel lucky. I always feel lucky. I feel lucky to, I feel lucky to, I'm going to Waco on Saturday, you know, this coming Saturday and I'm into that, you know, and that's going to be some game at 11 a.m. I think what happened to me though, in that case was moving abroad. So I lived most of eight years from 06 to 14 abroad, all but about parts of 20, like eight months in 2010. So that did two things for me. One, it got me living in England, in London, where there's, at least with the English Premier League, by far the biggest thing, there's no access. You know, these guys sit there and write, and they might have an interview with once a season with a major player. You know, there's no locker room thing. There's no sitting around this guy's locker. There's no, you're not getting much of anything, you know, all the year long. So that always made me think when I got back here that we were kind of oddball in that way that we're, we're the odd country out with the way we do it. And that, okay, if, if so-and-so wants to just give me five minutes as is happening more and more and more in college football, especially, um, all right, I'll just take the five and try to work my way around it, you know, in, in some way. And then sort of the other part of that is that uh, the games all seemed fresher to me once I came back and with college football, it seemed, it had always been weird and it is weird. And by any anthropological uh, sense, it's strange human behavior. No other country acts like this. I was living for a while in the Middle East. And when you explain to say, like a Pakistani journalist, for example, that we put 100,000 people in the stadium to watch college students play, this is so bizarre. And so being away for a while kind of gave me, you know, more of maybe uh, it heightened the sense of how bizarre it is. So that's the part of it that I really enjoy the most is just how freaked out people can be about their teams and, and how, how this all works. And just the sheer noise of it as well as the, 
biggest rival we have to world soccer is the college football noise, you know, in, in the stadium. So I guess moving away, maybe staved off the, the jadedness. You have easily the weirdest, most wayward resume of any sports writer working today. Without question. I just want to, I'm stealing this from the, uh, from the Washington Post from your website. It says, Cole Beverage lived in 10 states and four countries, including the three that contain the word United. United States, United Kingdom, United Arab Emirates. He has written previously for Sports on Earth, USA Today, The National, which is in Abu Dhabi, uh, LA Times, Newsday, Oregonian, Lexington Herald-Leader, National Sports Daily, Los Angeles Herald-Examiner, the Suffolk News-Herald, and beginning at 14, the Suffolk son of the Virginian pilot. I want to jump all over this. Beginning at age 14, the Suffolk son of the Virginian pilot. What is 14-year-old Chuck Culpepper doing writing for a newspaper? weekly wrap up of the little leagues in which I played. So uh, sometimes leaving myself out, you know, so baseball, little leagues. Wait, how did that happen though? How did you, how'd that happen? A neighbor down the street. We had neighbors, the Smiths, you know, the Smiths. Um, We love the Smiths. A neighbor down the street, Ed Smith was, I think he was at one of the, he went, he went to like Toastmasters speaking or, or Ruritan club or some kind of meeting of, businessmen in our town like that. And he, he met the editor of the Suffolk Sun and mentioned there was this kid down the street who might want to do this. So I spent all of high school writing for them and, and then for the Virginian pilot in Norfolk. Yeah. Were you a good writer at age 14? I would say, I have to say no, I guess I would say I'm not, you know, I I have trouble saying, I I always think if I wake up and think, Oh, I'm a good writer that that's going to destroy me. So I much prefer confidence crisis and inferiority complex to get me through the days. I think it's very handy to have. When I am very confused by anyone and you meet people who are like, yeah, I'm a really good writer. Like I'm very confused by people who brag about their writing or think they're great writing because I probably like you hate 95% of what I write. And I'm always seeing the warts. And when people are like, I've had people I'm sure like me, I'm salivating over your work. I've had people say like, so-and-so book, that's my favorite book. And the first word in my head, every time someone says that is really. And my second thought is you probably don't read many books. I'll tell you what, in our favor, (laughs) maybe, is the, did you watch that series that Martin Scorsese did with Fran Leibowitz recently? It was a, it was, I think it was, I forget what, maybe Netflix or it's about a seven part set of interviews. And she just, you know, she says she hasn't, written in so long because she has, as she calls it, not writer's block, but writer's blockade. And um, and so it's been, she she revels in the idea of not having written for a long time. And she told him at one point that she had known so many writers in her life, but only one who loved to write and was good. Only one. The rest either loved to write and were not good or hated to write and were good. Maybe it's some sort of thing you have in your head that you want it to sound a certain way and you're trying to access that sound. And when you can't, it's so terrible that, um, that you decide that you're terrible. Maybe. When I really started getting serious about writing, when I was in college at Delaware, I would listen to a lot of, there's this hip hop group called a tribe called quest. And it's uh sure. Yeah. And it's kind of jazzy hip hop. Mm-hmm. And I would listen to that as, as I would write. And I feel like I built an actually a rhythm of what I was accustomed to in my head writing, but um, but um, but um, like I can actually hear the stupid, but um, but um, but um, but um, but um, quote, but um, but um, but um, um, and I feel like I'm always trying to, I'm always trying to master that rhythm. 
but I never, I never do. I never like, I never really do. Like, do you, in your head, do you feel like it's supposed to be a certain way? Like you're writing it. Do you feel like there's a sort of rhythm to the words that yeah. you do? Yeah. I feel like it should be. I feel like there's, it should, there's a sound, you know, that you want that in your head you want in your awful, tormented, terrible head. There's this terrified head. Sorry. There's a sound that, yeah, that you want it, want it to have. And that, you know, any kind of disruption of that sound is, is jarring. Such as when you you know can't get it right or something has to be cut, which is not anybody's fault but our own. You know, it's not the editor's fault. So it's um yeah. So that there's a there's I don't know what the sound is, but there's some kind of sound that you want to have, and it's I don't know why that is either. It is interesting because I remember getting the first time I got edited hard at the Tennessean, but when I got to Sports Illustrated, they just used butcher knives to edit, and I remember the thing that I couldn't it took me a long time to get past is, I mean, I would write a sentence, do you do this, write a sentence, read it out loud, write two sentences, read it out loud, write a paragraph, read the whole thing out loud over and over and over again to build up this thing that I heard in my head. And then an editor just goes, yeah, I think we should move this paragraph up three. You're like, yeah, wait, what? That's exactly what happens to me. Not with the, not the, the editor. Cause where I work, the Washington post, it's if something doesn't work, they just tell you and you discuss it, which is so ideal yeah you know such a such a boost you know so uh yeah i mean i remember the great ed hinton oh yeah sitting with sitting with him once at the indianapolis 500 and he just gone to sports illustrate and he said the thing they do most is they peck you to death you're what you just said made me think of that that line i just love that line they peck you to death but yeah and it takes out whatever what he like he was saying the pecking takes out whatever rhythm or sound that you had in your head. But yep. then sometimes it gets, that gets taken out and then somebody will tell you, oh, I really love that thing. And you think, Oh, that wasn't really me. You know, that sound wasn't really me or wasn't really uh, what I intended yet. Somebody will tell you that it, I says, that's, that's almost too much to, I don't ever want to try to comprehend that in the world is why is, you know, the, the sound that we have versus just like with maybe music, if that doesn't sound too, uh, too lofty, but with, with music where, um, you know, where we all have a different thing we like to listen to. Yeah. So maybe, maybe a reader is similar. They have a different thing they like to, to listen to from, from our work. I don't know. Well, it's interesting. Cause I think like um, when I was at SI and I'm hearing tribe call question my head, my editor might be listening to Lawrence Welk. In fact, my editors probably were listening to Lawrence Welk. Right. Right. It's almost like they're not hearing that beat. They're hearing it. Wait. So when you write, I actually want to get back for a second. I I always jump all over here when you're sitting in, in the, uh, in the press box and you're writing about wake forest and you're going wake forest lost here Saturday. And it felt just a little like rainbows blurred sunflower sagged and puppies wept. Then you're right. The dreamy team with the dreamy name, the we enrollment and the hell of a coach couldn't keep leads of eight and 14 and saw a hiccup to its status as a charming undercurrent of the national college football season. When you're writing that, do you write the first few words, read it, add more words, read it, or do you just write it all and then read it? I think it's the former of those two start with the sentence. Yeah. But, but then that's, you know, that's, those games are, you're going fast. Even if you, even if you finish with the interviews and you have 40 minutes left, which is a lot uh, or feels like a lot, yeah. um, 
you know, that's why I don't ever go back and read them because I know I'll just spot all the, the things I would change. And, you know, it's horrifying. So it's the, it's the battle in the head. And I've had people tell me before that, um, that, you know, it's, it has to do with maybe something with impressing people. And I can see how you would, could think of it that way, but it's actually the opposite. It's entirely inside one's own head. And maybe with just, uh, trying to, uh, maybe even make yourself feel adequate or something like that. I don't know. Just it's, it's all going on within your own head. So yeah, it's, a sentence and then read that and then a sentence. Maybe, maybe I do that by paragraphs. I'll have do like a a paragraph and then read that. And then a paragraph and read that maybe, maybe kind of like that. But then, you know, you're halfway there and now you have 15 minutes to go. And, and, and so uh, it can be blurry from there. And, and, you know, when you read that to me, I think there was a a word or two that I would maybe want to take out now, but maybe not. I don't know. I used to write these long features for, Bleach Report. And I wrote a story about a basketball player who was killed in an apartment complex. And I spent a ton of time in the story and I really didn't like it. I didn't like how it came out. I thought it sucked. And then I start getting emails from people. Man, that story was amazing. God, that was a great story. I love that story. When you write something that you don't love and then people come back and tell you, you love it. They love it. Mm-hmm. Does it change your opinion to make you think, Oh, maybe that wasn't bad. Or do you just think I really know this sucked, but I appreciate you saying that. I go back to music. It's kind of like we all have different, we like to listen to some music, but not other. So we all like to read some style, but not other. It makes me think of that. So I don't know if I used to think that until about 10, five, whatever years ago, but it just makes me think, okay, you you know, your ear is not the same as my, you know, (laughs) wretched voices in my head and my wretched voices in my head and your ear are not a match in that case. We're just not a match because in that case, I didn't like what, how it sounded, but you did in the, in the case you were naming about the apartment complex. So that's, that's the way I think about it now. I I don't know if I used to think about that way, but because, you know, when you get emails that just say you're the worst, you're terrible and they, you know, you always get them, but you kind of learn to think of it as, uh, okay, so we're just not a match. (laughs) I, what's weird. One thing I find weird is like, I write a book, and every now and then I'll go on Amazon to read reviews and I'm always drawn to the one-star reviews, not the five-star reviews. Right. Which That's is- how we are. Why? Explain that. I don't know if anybody's ever explained that. It's kind of like in the way that um, I was thinking about this when the 30, I think it was a 30 for 30 about the, the Pistons Pacers fight. You know, it's, it's kind of like that in a way. There's so many NBA games every year. Why do we have to go back to the fight? You know? Yeah. And yet, that was a brilliant piece of work. I think most people agreed and fascinating. Um, why do we have to go back to the fight? And, and in, in that same way, I think, um, why does the, the one that dislikes you, the comment or whatever, the one star, why does that lodge itself in mind? I don't know. I don't know. It's part of the deal. And I think we should not, you know, I, I, I don't believe in um, lashing out in, in turn, but, um, but it's, although I have written back to, you know, people who, who wrote those things and sometimes just say, Oh, sorry, it didn't work for you or whatever. But, you know, I don't know why our minds work that way, but they do. My, uh, my favorite response to people when someone's like, you suck, you're a fucking asshole, blah, 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 blah. If you ever write back, dear Charlie, 
I just want you to know, I know we disagree, but I really appreciate you reaching out to me. Blah, 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 blah. Number one, you win automatically. And number two, half the time you get a response from the guy saying, you know what? I was really pissed off, but that's really cool of you to write back. And then you feel like the champ of champs. True. Yeah. True. Um, the place that fascinates me, fascinates me and has for years is the national, which was Frank DeFord startup, a daily sports newspaper. He left sports illustrated to do it. You brought in a lot of super stud writers, yourself included. How did you end up at the national? So I was at the Los Angeles Herald examiner, a glorious place, just vivid hallways full of these characters. You just couldn't even imagine, especially I'd moved from Virginia to there. So just all the vividness of Los Angeles was seemed to course through that building. One, 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 one South Broadway, now a historic uh, landmark, but on um, November 1st, 1989, it shut down and it had always been rumored that it might shut down. And, um, and so I was interviewing the punter at UCLA. Now an artist, I believe I, I looked him up named Kirk Maggio. He was the number one punter in the country. They were having a tough year. So I was doing a feature on him and just a great conversation. I got in the car, turned right onto Sunset Boulevard and heard on the news radio news that we were shutting down. So the national was starting up at that point. So that's that if it, if it had not shut down, I would have just stayed there. Um, but the national was starting up and the national had pulled people from other places. So there were jobs everywhere. You know, suddenly you're on the phone with the Miami Herald, Boston Globe. I remember at that, at that time. And I chose that one because it, they, they moved me from L.A. to Chicago. And I wrote about Notre Dame mostly and college basketball, DePaul and Notre Dame. So they, you know, I just wanted the new adventure of going and learning a new city. I, I really like the idea of learning new cities. So, yeah, that was why I, I landed there. And I don't think I counted at all among the, the stars of that place, you know, because there were. They were, there were lots of them and um, their salaries matched it. <laughs> Could the national, the national, I don't remember how long it lasted. It was not particularly long. Uh, 17 months. 17 months. And it was literally for people who, this is going to sound foreign to anyone under the age of whatever, 25, but it was a daily sports, five days a week, daily sports newspaper. Yeah. And I remember I was in high school when it came out and I was like, holy shit, this is the best thing Ever. First of all, it had Frank DeFord, who was the biggest name in sports media, had a gazillion huge writers. It came out every day. The features were awesome. And then one day it just freaking vanished. Did you see its demise coming from your little area and could it have worked? Okay. So about a month and a half before it, before it went down, I got a job uh, doing a column at the Lexington Herald leader in Kentucky, where I stayed nine years is a fantastic um, experience all around. But, um, so it, people told me, like my dad told me one time, he said, wow, you must have seen the demise coming. But I, did, I really didn't. I didn't think it would go that soon. Although, here's this, and I love this story. Um, so it had, the owner was from Mexico and a big uh, telecommunications magnet. And I had a dear friend named Sarah Worman, who she was about, let's see, maybe 70 at the time, but still working had her own fashion line and she was in New York and she knew the guy who she knew a guy who, uh, who worked for um, as an art curator, I believe for, for this telecommunications magnet. And she said, she said, well, I've heard a rumor that uh, his wife doesn't like the fact that this thing is hemorrhaging so much money. 
And then she, she always had these little sayings and she said, and you know, there's no insecurity like the insecurity of a fifth wife. So that's my, that's kind of my like introduction to the ending of the national was that story, even though I didn't quite buy that it was going to go down. Um, it did go down fast. I, I would have thought at least five years, three years. It was kind of the equivalent of if the athletic went down now, except the athletic employees about a gazillion and a half people. Right. Yep. They are similar. They are. I mean, I remember it was hatched on the idea that Spain, Italy, Mexico, I believe all those had daily sports newspapers. And why couldn't it work in the United States? You, you went to work for Sports on Earth, another sort of shooting star that kind of flamed out fairly quickly, sport, all sports website. I had someone on my podcast recently who also worked for Sports on Earth. Oh, it's Joe Posnanski. And I said, um, did you think when you were when you were signed, the, when you signed there that this thing was going to last? And you're like, I really wanted it to, but I never fully understood how it would. When you got there, did you think, oh, this thing is going to be great? This is going to be amazing? And it was I mean, it was a great place to work. I mean, my goodness, who, you know, but yeah, I think maybe I'm too Pollyanna about these things because I thought it would be around at least five years or so. I don't know if I thought it would be profitable, but I thought that Major League Baseball and USA Today and that combination would would sustain it for for maybe longer than it eventually did. Yeah, you did not see it coming in the end? No. In fact, um, when it turned one year, they sent me around the world. So I went, I went from Seattle to Hong Kong to Kuala Lumpur to Dhaka, Bangladesh to Amman, Jordan to Munich to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and then Sao Paulo, Brazil, and then back to New York all in two weeks. <laughs> I'm thrilled with having done this, obviously. And so in 2014, I went to the Olympics in Sochi and stayed out of the country almost all the six months from February to August. So ended up at the World Cup in Brazil and got back and was ready to just continue working. Went to the PGA in Louisville, 2014, Valhalla. Uh, and let, when the plane landed, I learned that I didn't have a job. So I had no clue. When you were at Sports on Earth, you wrote a now, I think, famous column and like important column. Unfortunately, because Sports on Earth, it's basically vanished. You got to work to find it. it. Yeah. Find it. But uh, called the Gay Super Bowl 2013. Oh, right. Yeah. That's a biggie, which basically was, was, I would say, you coming out in a public manner. Is that, is that fair to say? Sure. As much as, you know, I wouldn't count as a public figure, like a player for the Raiders or, or what, or for the patri- former of the Patriots or whatever. But, but yeah, just in, in terms of uh, uh, kind of making it easier. I guess I just made it, I thought I made it easier on myself to do that. You wrote in it, I have in front of me, I found a copy, and you wrote, on six continents, I have hung around excellent gay people who find sports an unappealing mystery and look flabbergasted at my interest. I've hung around excellent sports writers who would never stray near a gay bar unless they wandered too far down Bourbon Street at a Final Four. The gay people seldom ask about the sports people, and the sports people seldom ask about the gay people. I'm believed to be the only gay male extant who can recite the final score of all 47 Super Bowls. And if we're together and you're unlucky, I might start it up. Super Bowl 23. Uh, San Francisco 20, Cincinnati 16. Wow. Why did you decide to use that form at that time to do so? So uh, my great friend Steve Buckley in Boston had just his mother uh, had encouraged him before she died to come out in uh, January of 2011, I believe was his. And I had read it while I was working in Dubai, Abu Dhabi. Um, and I'd read it from there and I'd thought, you know, at the, and so at that time I was out of the country, so it didn't matter, you know, or it, it wasn't something I was going to do. 
obviously. But um, I think at that point, I just from him, and then I went with him, I rode with him to that AFC championship game between the Ravens and the Patriots, which that story is based around. And that's where I thanked Brendan, I and Vajejo, the, um, the football player who had stood up for gay rights, even a little bit before it was fashionable. So um, it was maybe with Steve's encouragement. That's too long of an answer. Oh. With Steve, Steve's encouragement um, that I sort of thought, okay, I'll go ahead and do this now because it definitely, from there on, I walked to stadiums differently than I had the entire 25 years before that. When Carl Nassib came out earlier this year, mm-hmm. he talked about feeling freer to do his job and feeling freer to play as a football player and not be burdened by this thing. And I feel like a lot of people would hear that and say, I don't really, I don't understand what one has to do with the other. Why this, why would being closeted impact how you play as a football player? Um, and it seems like you experienced that directly. How would you, how would you actually explain, like, what is it about expressing who you are that sort of allows you to just, I, I'm going to walk in the stadium. I'm going to feel better about myself. I'm going to be a football player. I'm going to feel better about myself. Like, how do you connect the two? I knew what he was saying in every vessel and nerve and pore, you know, every, I knew exactly what he meant, even though it's, I go to a stadium to a different part of the stadium, you know? Yeah. Um, I think it's that um, maybe you're no longer saying, Hey, there's something in, something fundamentally wrong with me because if I can't, tell you this, then it must be wrong. Maybe that's it. And then um, maybe it's the idea that you always worried that someone could harm you by, I don't know, outing you or somehow that would harm your career and future if someone else did that. And so when you just go ahead and, and sort of write the truth in that case is I realized that people couldn't hurt me in that way anymore. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, and uh, she's leaving for college soon. Are you crying? No. Are you crying? Are you crying? Are you crying? There's no crying. There's no crying in Royal Retro's ads. Why don't you give him a little break, Casey? Oh, you zip it, Mom. Mrs. Schuster was my kindergarten teacher, and she called me Cassie by accident. And that was when my parents drove all the way from Tama Road for the class play. And did I cry? No, no. Yeah, no. And do you know why? No. Because there's no crying in a Royal Retro's ad. There's no crying in a Royal Retro's ad. No crying. I think the one thing that is uh, far more like controversial about your life even back then than being gay is that you actually can name the scores to all every super bowl i find i hope i got that it was 20 to 16 it was oh good yeah so you're good you know what you know what kind of hung me up there is why didn't the 40 why wouldn't the 49ers kick a tying field goal well it's because they went ahead and scored montana to john taylor in the back of the end zone you know so for a second there, I was like, could that have been 20 to 16 if it was 16, 13 before that touchdown? See, see how, see what a whack job I am. I'm the exact same way. I would say, do you do this? Do you remember things? Like if you say to me, you need to remember the number 3,373. I'll say, all right, 33, Ken Griffey with the Yankees, 73, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Joe Klecko. You do that? Oh, for sure. Phone numbers. Like it's. You know, I, I hate it now that people just text you the phone, the contact page, you know, the phone number. I, I want to try to remember the phone number and then, you know, 
and then text someone the next day and have them say, wow, I can't believe you remembered the phone number. If I say to you like 14,028, who is that to you? Well, now see, that would be too easy because I start with 14, which, okay, I'm going to go just straight. So a lot of times I use players' numbers, yes. Yeah. But 14, I just go straight to Bastille Day. That's the where it took me. Nice. And so the 14th, and then it's just times two. So that one's, you know, there are harder ones than that. That was not a good one. Um, I want to <laughs> ask you about one more story you wrote that was freaking brilliant, and I have it I printed out in front of me. November 14th, 2020, 50 years after its unfathomable loss, Marshall spent another November 14th with pain and memories. I'm going to read your lead real quick. Uh, Huntington, West Virginia. Suddenly, in the 7.30 a.m. of a cold, calm Saturday, the departed reappeared. They re reappeared on banners, two to a lamppost, through a stirring turn of thinking and of art. They appeared, as they have in recent months, along these winding sidewalks and autumn trees of the Marshall campus, their 75 faces beaming out from high up in a black and white photo, some grainy. In some curious way, they presided at the 50-year memorial service honoring the 75 victims of the worst plane crash in U.S. sports history, the Marshall team plane that struck a rainy hillside near landing after a game in East Carolina on November 14, 1970. They helped hold a vigil before the vigil while the sun tried to peek out through the fog. Addie Goldstein's slow-noted beauty, just a little hope, floated from the speakers over the chairs scattered during a pandemic. And two small children wore jackets reading Coach Tolly, the Marshall head coach who died at 30 in the crash well, well before their births. It's a great story about something... Yes. That's been written about a million times, which is really the credit of a great story. You know, we've all read about the Marshall plane crash. The movie is one of my least favorite movies of all time. We are Marshall. I can't stand. I hate what they did to that story. This was freaking gorgeous. What exactly was the assignment? That's very kind. Thank you. Every Monday, um, I discuss with an editor where I'll go on the weekend. And that weekend last year, there wasn't a game that you hate to say it this way. There were. I hate to think of it this way, but there wasn't a game that was shouting, you have to be there, like a game that would, would factor into the playoff chase. Right. And, but Marshall was having this, you know, this ceremony. And also, I think part of what directed me there in my head was um, Liverpool. So in 1989, for the LA Times, I had covered, I had li was living in England, and I had covered the Liverpool 20-year mark of the Hillsborough disaster. And it was, a. I might even get, I mean, it was so, I have never seen a better job of remembering uh, people. You know, it fades, uh, tra the tragedy fades. But here in Liverpool, you know, partly because of the way the police handled it and so on and the way the pr press handled it, there's still a feeling of, they, they really keep these victims, 96 in that case, alive in their minds. And so I just thought it was so ideal so I, when in the case of Marshall, they've done likewise. They have kept those victims just living in, in memory. And it's, it's so powerful to me. It's so just idealistic. It's, it's the way it, you would hope it, it would be, that they would not, you know, that, that thing about never forgetting, they, they would not forget. And so I didn't know what I would find when I went there. I didn't know the ceremony would be so compelling. I didn't know. Like, I talked to a woman whose brother died in it and he called the family on Friday. He was all excited to that Friday to ride on that big bird, he said, for the first time in his life. And uh, she still, you know, stays in mind. So I think it was the idea of Liverpool and the art of remembering, like, 
how good are we at the art of remembering? And I, I wondered if Marshall, you know, they had the movie and everything. So it's, it's been kept alive in the consciousness, but even so what they did and what they staged and how they referred to these victims was, I found extraordinary. I had a writer say to me the other day, I, I wrote a, th- a thing about um, door knocking, writing on knocking on doors, awkward door knocks. And I, I asked this one writer how he goes about it. And he said he, he once covered a, uh, a teenager who was killed and he had to knock on the mother's door and talk to her about it, which is obviously awful. And he said the line someone told him that he now has remembered for years and I'm going to remember is he said, he said to the woman uh, in today's paper, we wrote about how your son died tomorrow. We want to write about how he lived. Number one, I think it's a brilliant line. And number two, I find throughout my career approaching people who are mourning is intimidating, but 99.9% of the time they want to talk to you. Oh, absolutely. It, I think it helps them. That should be so presumptuous to say, I think it helps. I do. I agree. Um, Wait, there was one part in the story that I just loved. In a way, it relates to what you said about um, the Michigan State coach sort of excusing his voice. You wrote, um, so they did. And before they did, four men with hair aged to white walked up to the sidewalk beneath the banners wearing purple rather than Marshall Green. There were former East Carolina running back Rusty Scales, defensive tackle Richard Peeler, offensive tackle Grover Truslow, and defensive tackle Chuck Zadnick. When they had driven eight hours from Greenville, North Carolina, to pay respects 50 years after a postgame, in which they had hugged Marshall players and shaken their hands. I remember having to chase that quarterback all over the field, Zadnick said, of Ted Shoebridge, a crash victim. It was a hard-fought game. Then, I remember when I first heard about it, as East Carolina celebrated 17-14 win, somebody walked in and yelled, the Marshall plane crashed. They began to hold memorials on their own campus. That night, that Sunday, 50 years later, their chancellor, Ron Mitchelson, sent an email to Gilbert that concluded, today, we are all Marshall. The ex-players who represented Mitchelson's school milled about with Marshall fans, posed for photos, then made their way indoors. It's not our story, Zadnik said. We're just a part of it. And I feel like a lot of reporters would see these four guys from a different school and actually kind of ignore it and be like, I'm kind of here to write about Marshall. These guys didn't even go here. You see the guys show up. Are you immediately drawn to it? Yes. I didn't know while drawn to it that, you know, that they had driven. I mean, that just seriously. I mean, 50 years later, I guess they're in their late 60s or early 70s by this point. And they, that's not an easy drive. There's a lot of, it's a lot of deer and mountains and, and mist or whatever that it wouldn't be the funnest drive. It wouldn't be US one in California, you know, it's uh, or highway one, whatever they say. say. Um, but it's, it just floors me that they do that, that they still do that. And that, you know, they happen to be the team. They just so happen to be the opponent that day. And if you think about, I, I think it was, as I recall, not their first trip to one of these, maybe they'd made a couple of the others and that they've made it part of their lives. And it's something there about these weren't people they knew, you know, these were, this is just another, another team, another opponent. So it's something about maybe the shared experience of playing might be in there. You know, what one of my favorites, that old frosty Westering at Pacific Lutheran, the coach he used to call them. He used to tell his players, the other side has given you the privilege of playing. Without them, you wouldn't have that privilege. So treat them decently. That's what he meant by it. And here, maybe these guys, without knowing, have that's what they're thinking is. They gave us the privilege of playing. And it, 50 years later, you're going to drive that far to go to, you know, in a, I guess it was four guys in the car together. Um, 
That's very powerful to me. Very powerful to me. I just think the number one thing about sports at the end of the day is a pull of nostalgia. And I mean, nostalgia, a million different directions. But I think more than the moment of the win, it's somehow with sports, food, and music, you can be 30 years removed and taste something and it takes you back to your grandma's kitchen. Or you can hear a song you've thrown back to college. Every time you hear Freedom by George Michael, I'm thrown back to my college newspaper and I'm all sitting there. And every time, whatever, these guys every year, they're thrown back into this horrible, horrible moment of being in their locker room after a win and someone saying, holy shit, the plane just crashed. I think the power of nostalgia owns sports. Oh, I agree. And you know what? College football might be the, the runaway front runner in, yep. in the U.S. in that regard. It's just, you know, people that I was in 2014, I was in Oxford, Mississippi when Ole Miss beat Alabama and the infrequency of that happening lent so much energy to this, the square that night in Oxford. There was no question about it. If Ole Miss and Alabama had, had played and, and had gone about 50-50 in their rivalry through the years, that, that'd be fun, but it wouldn't be anything like it was because of the rarity of Ole Miss beating them. And so within that rarity, the Ole Miss fans can immediately call up, you know, previous seasons where they did beat Alabama. It's such a part of college football. You've lived all over the globe, and now you live back here in America. America is obviously in a little tumultuous place right now. You've lived in a lot of different places. You've seen a lot of different things. You've lived in oppressive societies. You've lived in open societies. When you hear people in America now really angry over America, are you more, you guys have no idea, you haven't seen the world, I've seen the world, this is better than you think it is, or are you more, holy shit, I can't believe this is happening here? Hmm. I don't know if I'm either one. I think what strikes me the most about living away for about seven out of eight years um, is that the world does not think as much about us as we think that it does. And we never think about the world. And if I could change one thing about the U.S., I would, you know, what would be we all would have some list, you know, no matter what side of politics or social life or whatever that you're on, we all would have you know, you can't be perfect. So we all would have some list, but I think number one for me would be just to, if, if somehow could upgrade the curiosity about the world, because that it bothers me. It used to bother me when I lived in Abu Dhabi, one of the safest places on earth, probably safer than just about anywhere here. And people would write to me about how concerned they were for my safety. And because the uprising in Egypt was going on, well, that's 1500 miles away, you know, and, um, that kind of thing used to just bug me. It just If I could encourage one thing, it would just be that people here could maybe just take the time to learn more of the, the uh, variations and the realities around the world. I, I think it would help everything if, if we could, you know, just become more familiar with things that we're afraid of or used to be afraid of. Or, or, um, and I just think there would be more understanding. I, another example, I'm married a, Colombian citizen. I love Colombia. I've been there 28 times. I, I know this from filling out forms, but, you know, people just bring up drugs all the time, you know, and that it, not only is that kind of outdated, but it's just, it's so far from the entire picture. So yeah, that's the thing that, that I would fix the most. So when, when I, when I hear people say that, uh, I guess in some regard, I, I don't have either of those reactions. I, I guess I always feel like it's, 
a blessing to be able to to speak your opinion because I've lived in a f- couple places or been to a couple places where it's not. Um, and the final question I'm required to ask everyone who appears on this podcast, what is the angriest an athlete or coach has ever been at you? Oh, wow. You know, I used to write that column in Kentucky and um, Rick Patino was the coach there for the first six seasons I was there. And I'm from Suffolk, Virginia. And so anger there is stored up over time and you don't express it and you don't express it and you don't express it. And then it just barrels out. And here's Rick Patino from New York and anger there is expressed every day. I used to dislike the way he responded to losses. And I, I thought he should be a better loser on the rare occasions when those happen because such a brilliant coach. But I finally just let it loose one day in 1994, just a column that even people who didn't like him said was over the top. And he wrote me back a three-page letter responding in kind, I guess. Totally, totally fair. Um, and I, I didn't keep the letter. I guess I should have whatever, you know. It was about a year and a half before we had a good conversation again. Was Rick Pitino right? In a lot of ways, yeah. Yeah. One thing he would do is berate the sports information staff after the loss. He'd berate everybody. Yeah. And so not right in that regard, but yeah, right in the fact that, uh, I guess he was right in the fact that it was just this barrage, you know, so he was just responding to that. And I, I just remember him saying like, you, you have to be who you are. You can't be this writer or that writer or the other writers, which were, were invariably writers he didn't like from New York because they had blasted him for leaving the Knicks or whatever. Yeah, I guess, I guess in a lot of ways I did feel like he was right. Cause, um, because again, I hadn't pointed this out before and then suddenly I'm just letting it all loose after a few years, which is classic Virginia anger. I call it. <laughs> you went to, if you went to Iona right now to do a piece on Rick Pitino, mm-hmm. would you remember this happened? No, I don't think so. But I mean, I've had conversations with him in the years since, you know, I did a feature on his son coaching at Minnesota when he was big 10 coach of the year. And, um, and he, you know, he called me five times. I was on an airplane, you know, he really wanted to talk about that, you know? So no, I don't think, and also right in New York, anger is not such a, it's not, it's lived day to day and expressed and natural part of humanity and unleashed and out and gone and not bottled up inside. And so therefore it's not such a big dramatic occasion. Right. So I would say on that front, he's used to maybe people getting mad at him and maybe, and, and vice versa. And so, you know, he's used to, to that. So yeah, maybe might not even remember it. Well, Chuck, I'm a, uh, as I said, huge admirer of your work. I really appreciate you doing this. I'm a, seriously, I'm a huge fan of your work and have been for a long time. And I just, uh, big admirer. So thank you so much. I don't take compliments well, but that's so kind. And thank you so much. I want to thank today's guest, Chuck Culpepper, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Chuck on Twitter at Chuck Culpepper One and read his work in the Washington Post. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Writers Sling and Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no money for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.